Chapter 11 of Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 11 An Air Voyage. Every preparation had been made for our proposed voyage into the interior, and as the sun appeared from behind the eastern edge of the southern verge, we were embarking on the airship. Our party consisted of McNair, Iola, Aqua, Captain Gano, and myself. I took my place at the helm with McNair, and told him that I wanted to take lessons in aerial navigation. He kindly explained the use of the electric keyboard, which controlled the machinery, and I found it so simple that I felt no need of an instructor. In this placid atmosphere all I had to do was to set the ship in the direction we wanted to go and turn on the power until we reached the speed at which we desired to travel. All the motions of the vessel were under absolute control. I found the steering apparatus could be readily adjusted to overcome a light wind, and reasoned that the same principles would enable us to ride the storm. This first practical experience in aerial navigation gave me confidence. Our course was a little north of west, and we were soon leaving the great communal agricultural district which we now regarded as our home. According to our reckoning, it was now the 1st of February, and I had begun to figure whether it would be possible for us to be ready to attempt the proposed journey to the outer world during the northern summer. If we did, it would certainly require intense application. These thoughts were continually running through my mind, and they spurred me up to gather all the information possible for the book that I was preparing. The country over which we were passing was still agricultural, but the surface was more broken and the general arrangements were changed accordingly, presenting to our vision an agreeable variety. We still saw the magnificent communal homes with correspondingly large areas of cultivated lands, but we also saw cottages gathered into groups with large public buildings which McNair informed us were schools, public halls, homes for the aged, hospitals, and especially homes for prospective mothers who felt that the ideal conditions which these homes afforded would secure the best possible development of their offspring. I was forcibly struck by the number and grandeur of these homes for mothers. I had noticed that every communal home had its department for the care of mothers, and now I found that the grandest structures that I had ever seen were devoted exclusively to this purpose. In reply to my inquiries, I was informed that this care for motherhood was a universal feature throughout the inner world. But in this, as in everything else, liberty prevails. The mother is always free to select her own conditions. Many prefer these large public homes, which are exclusively under the control of women, while others, with different temperaments, prefer greater exclusiveness in their own apartments, but all alike make this period of prospective motherhood one in which all the environments are calculated to produce the best possible prenatal influences upon the unborn child. For this purpose, different temperaments require different surroundings. The impressions produced by beautiful scenery and social enjoyments on one may be more readily produced by reading, lectures, music, and intellectual entertainments on another. 
the unperverted taste of the mother is always accepted as a sure guide to what is best in each case and the best is always provided while the country over which we were passing did not have the same artificial appearance as if laid out by one uniform pattern like that where we had been located since our arrival in altruria i still noticed the general tendency of the people to get together in large communities we passed over large districts of wild lands which afforded ample opportunities for isolated homes but nowhere did we see anything of the kind this induced captain gano to ask if there was any law against people getting out by themselves and cultivating these wild lands nothing but the natural law said okwa which impels people to do that which is the most conducive to their happiness the people of this country do not like drudgery and they have learned by experience that in order to avoid drudgery they must work together on a large scale as one family each for all and all for each in the olden times people in their ignorance scattered into single families consisting of a man and wife and their children they wasted their energies in their isolated efforts and were at the mercy of the few who had the intelligence to work together when the masses became more intelligent they gathered into communities and cooperated with each other to make the most out of their labour and to avoid the payment of tribute to speculators who did not work at all they soon found that they could not possibly consume all that they were able to produce and they began to work less and enjoy more but asked the captain have you no arrangement by which a man and his wife could get out on these wild lands and make a home for themselves we certainly have no arrangement said okwa that would prevent their doing so but if they should try such an experiment it would not last long as soon as they found themselves toiling incessantly to procure a bare subsistence while the great masses in the communities were spending eleven-twelfths of their time in the enjoyment of rest and pleasurable recreations they would seek admission into a large communal home where all who are willing to perform their share of labour are welcome but said the captain you say that the people of this country once lived in isolated homes the people in the outer world do so now and they feel that to be the best possible condition for the development of the highest qualities how were the individualists of this country persuaded to give up their individual holdings and accept in lieu thereof a community interest in the products of their own labour they outgrew their preconceived opinions said okwa among the performers of the olden time none were more earnest than a large and very intelligent class of individualists who believed that the people ought to own the land and that the individual holder ought to pay the community for its use in proportion to its value as land not counting the value of the improvements these reformers agreed to the abolition of land titles and in accordance with the doctrines which they had promulgated long and earnestly they took their lands in severalty and paid the community a tax for its use as individualists they could not object to other people forming communities and having all things in common but when they discovered how much more they had to work than their neighbours they were true to their own interests and joined the communities where their labour became so much more effective they found that instead of sacrificing any of their individual rights by so doing they actually made those rights more valuable by being relieved of drudgery 
the land tax to the community was abolished in the course of time and then any individual might take a homestead and cultivate it in his own way without being taxed for the privilege of doing so but this right is never exercised as it would deprive the individuals thus setting up for themselves of free access to the commonwealth of the community and the common advantages which belong to the community life they could only enter the communal homes as guests and strangers and while free entertainment is never refused proud-spirited individualists would never think of securing a subsistence by visiting around they would naturally prefer doing their share of the work to create the common stock and hence our individualists are all in our communal homes and have no desire for individual holdings of any kind their community interest in the commonwealth is worth vastly more to them than all the wealth that they could create by individual effort but asked the captain do you permit no private ownership of property at all in these communities yes we do said okwa all persons may accumulate property which they create by personal labor if they wish to burden themselves with the care of it but as there is an abundance in the common store to supply every want there is no motive for the private ownership of anything but personal belongings which are ordinarily of no value to anyone else the members of the community may have anything they need out of the common stock and intelligent people would not encumber themselves with the care of more than they have a use for the greed for the accumulation of property which i am informed is so prevalent in the outer world if manifested here would be taken as an evidence of insanity and would be treated accordingly it is very difficult for the average altruian to realize that people should ever desire to hoard up wealth which it is impossible for them to consume but when we scan the pages of our early history at the time when legal money was the medium of exchange and the standard of value the people made a mad scramble for money in which they disregarded every interest of humanity we were now approaching a region where art and nature seemed to have united in one mighty and persistent effort to excel each other in the entrancing beauty and ragged grandeur that could be added to the picture on either side was a broad expanse of cultivated lands interspersed with parks lawns and ornamented grounds which revealed the work of the most artistic landscape gardeners beneath us the cocytus meandered its way toward the distant ocean between its wooded shores like a shining pathway of silver while before us the great continental divide with its towering mountain peaks piercing the clouds closed our view towards the west at one moment we were admiring the ragged grandeur of this lovely mountain chain and at another entranced by the beauty of the highly ornamented landscape where art had improved upon nature take it all in all the scenery presented to our view from the cabin of our airship sailing at a height of several thousand feet was sublime beyond the power of words to describe as we neared the mountains mcnair took charge of the ship and made a detour toward the south which brought into view the mighty canyon through which the cocytus reached the plain on either side were mountain torrents dashing over their rocks on their way to join the waters of the deep flowing river here nature in all her majesty revealed her titanic powers but suddenly another scene opened upon our vision in which art revealed itself as master of all the forces of nature it was more like a city than anything we had seen since leaving san francisco and yet it was very much unlike any city i have ever seen 
I was bewildered by its sudden appearance upon the wonderful panorama of nature and art which seemed to hold us spellbound. Palatial buildings in white and silver appeared in every direction, surrounded by highly ornamented grounds, no smoke, no dust, and no miserable shanties to remind us of the poverty and misery which characterized the cities of the outer world. In the distance, it presented a panorama of beauty and grandeur, more like the paintings of a gorgeous midsummer dream than any real achievement of human skill and human taste. It was more like the fancied abode of the gods than the dwelling place of men. This was Orbitello, and as it lay spread out before us, it presented a scene beyond my powers of description. It was located on an elevated plateau and almost enclosed within a bend of the river, which flows around it on three sides, the west, south, and east, like a silver highway, over which electric yachts of almost every size and description were gliding. It was a dream of beauty that once seen would never be erased from the memory. This, said McNair, is our continental headquarters. Here was at one time a large city, but every remnant of the old structures was removed long ago. The location, however, is so central that it was selected as our chief center of business for all the departments of the public service. It is a favorite gathering place for large numbers of people from all parts of the world, hence the number of buildings for the accommodation of visitors. It is in fact a perpetual world's fair, a miniature picture of the world as it is today. There is no better place to study the civilization of the inner world in all its phases. McNair was interrupted by a familiar voice with a well-remembered ship ahoy, and as we turned around to see from whence it came, another airship came alongside, and we exchanged greetings with our old shipmates, Battelle and Houston, and our saviors, as we called them, Polaris and Dion, who both addressed us in English. Please speak Altrurian, I said. I have abandoned English except in cases of emergency, as I am anxious to perfect myself in the use of your native tongue. Remember that I have become a citizen of Altruria and have no desire to perpetuate the use of a foreign language. And we, replied Polaris, want to perfect ourselves in the use of English, as we want to visit America and talk like native, just as soon as a ship can be constructed that will enable us to navigate the frozen regions without being frozen ourselves. And one, I responded, that can hold to its course with a side wind of a velocity from 50 to 100 miles an hour. Have no fears on that score, interposed Patel. We have the principal parts of the machinery completed, and all that remains to be done is for you to take a trial trip to the southern verge and see how it will work in a storm, and in the meantime we will try our hands at constructing one that will be proof against the cold of a polar winter. Better go to the southern verge now, while it is comparatively temperate, and test our improvements in a gale. All right, I said. I am willing, but who will go with me? I ought to have the assistance of someone who could not only stand the exposure, but be able to make observations. It will keep one person busy to manage the ship during a storm, no matter how perfect your machinery may be. I suggest, said Battelle, that you take Leif and Eric, who are first-class mechanics as well as scientists. This is their request, and it ought to be granted. We need both Houston and Captain Gano to assist in the construction of a cold-proof vessel. This is the plan of work that I suggest. How will it suit you? Anything suits me that looks towards success, I said. 
since you have already completed the inventions that i had contemplated it is but fair that you dictate how they should be used until we can improve on your improvements which by the way i hope may not be necessary oh yes it will said battel just as soon as there is no room for improvement everything will be perfect and with nothing to do nothing to live for and no improvements to make constituted as we are now we would very likely be just as unhappy as we are now anxious to improve the airship or to accomplish any other object that is dear to us this is a working world and we are workers and when there is no work to do there will be no use for us on our present plane of development you talk like a philosopher i said one would think you had graduated from an Altrurian university. So I have, said Battelle. Were you not talking Altrurian philosophy all the time we were together on the ice kink? So I was to some extent prepared for what we have found in this highly developed country. But what's the matter? I asked, as Battelle's airship came to a full halt and seemingly began to fall. Before I recovered from my surprise, it had settled lightly on the top of a stupendous structure, and McNair was evidently aiming for the same place as he set our ship to circle around in the way i have often described i had seen the practical workings of one of battelle's improvements and could not help seeing that it was an undoubted success the mechanism that would control the vessel while dropping toward the earth seemed to me more difficult of construction than that which would hold it on its course against contrary side winds a minute later when we had reached the surface polaris and her crew so to speak had disembarked and we had a cordial handshaking and then took a stroll around the roof of this immense building everything about it seemed to indicate that it was especially designed for the accommodation of business on a gigantic scale it was built of the semi-transparent material which we had found so common in the district where we had made our homes the cornice windows and doors were trimmed with aluminum which gave it a peculiar grandeur of appearance mcnair who was ever ready to make explanations informed us that this was the continental department of exchange through which all the commercial transactions between the various districts throughout the continent were carried on this was the chief centre of distribution and bore the same relation to the continent that the district exchange bore to the several communities of which it was composed the community stores made the actual distribution of products to the people these larger exchanges district and continental did not really handle the products at all but collected the orders from the consumers and sent them direct to the communities where the goods were wanted in this way saving very much unnecessary labor in handling and transportation the actual exchange of commodities was always direct between the producers and the consumers i did not quite comprehend all this but it prepared me for the object lesson which was to come i was keenly alert to everything that was to be seen and heard as it was valuable material for the book which i now felt sure i would be able to lay before the people of the outer world it was now noon and mcnair suggested that it was about time for dinner no doubt he said your fifteen hundred miles of travel has given you an appetite and suiting the action to the suggestion we all stepped upon an elevator and descended to the largest dining hall i had ever seen it seemed that thousands of people were seated at the tables quietly conversing and enjoying their midday meal we seated ourselves at a vacant table and okwa said i shall order for all as our american visitors are not yet perfectly familiar with our customs 
and manipulating a button at her side, I was surprised to see the center of the table disappear, but it reappeared before I had sufficiently recovered my equilibrium to ask questions, and it was loaded with the most tempting viands. Oko explained that these central tables, which carried the food, stood on the top of an elevator that connected with the kitchen below. That when an order was received, a table was already prepared to take the place of the one which the elevator brought down. Everything moved with quite celerity. No bustling waiters and no waiting for orders to be filled. After dinner we passed into a large sitting-room, elegantly furnished with chairs, divans, sofas, etc., splendidly upholstered. I noticed chairs and divans on wheels and asked McNair for an explanation, and he replied, These chairs are moved by electricity, supplied by storage batteries just under the seats. You apply the power by pressing a button on the arm by your side and guide them with your feet. You will often find them in use, particularly in large places like Orpitello, where travellers coming in fatigued and people on business with the various departments, having many places to go, need some easy means of locomotion. In the olden time, waiters used to push these chairs around by hand, but with the advent of electricity, electric motors were substituted and now the people who use these chairs need no such assistance, and all the chairmen have to do is to see that the chairs are returned to their proper place. After a little instruction, we found no difficulty in going where we pleased in our chairs, and regulating their direction and speed with perfect ease. This novel experience was so agreeable that we decided to visit the leading points of interest in these electric chairs. The first place to visit was the business offices of this great continental exchange. We took our places in a large elevator room and passed down to the office of the Commissioner of Exchange. On either side of the great hall were shelves containing large books in which we were informed were statistics of production that are sent in from every district twice a year at the close of each crop season. These records show just how much surplus each district has for exchange and of what it consists. This information is for the order and supply department, which is on the same floor, toward which we were directing our chairs. Here we entered a long hall, on either side of which were arranged desks and electrical instruments. The clerks in attendance each represented a district, and were selected by the districts to fill these positions because of their intimate knowledge of the wants of their several localities and of the surplus they had for exchange. The district commissioners sent their orders to their own clerk, which was written out by telautograph, on his own desk. The order was at once transmitted by the same method to the district having the surplus through its own clerk and a duplicate of these orders to the record department. These orders, when received from the district commissioners, were transmitted to the communities having the surplus. The community department of exchange then shipped it directly to the place where it was needed. Under this system of distribution, products passed directly from the producer to the consumer and were never handled but once. The producers held their surplus in their own possession until they had orders from consumers by whom it was needed. The commissioner of exchange at Orbitello had a tabulated report of the surplus held by each district, and each district had its clerks in the order and supply department of the Continental Exchange. When an agricultural district wanted machinery, musical instruments, furniture, clothing, etc., the order for the same was transmitted to its own clerk in the department of exchange, and it was at once sent to the district or districts having a surplus of the products needed. 
and when a manufacturing district needed food supplies, the orders were sent to the clerk in the Continental Exchange, and the order was transmitted to the nearest agricultural district that had a surplus for exchange. Under this system of organized exchange, if any district found that it had a surplus accumulating in its warehouses, for which there was no demand, this was all the notice required that a time had come to curtail production in that particular line. From what we could see of the workings of this system, by going through this department, we could readily see how the law of supply and demand, if permitted to act freely with no artificial restrictions, would be a perfect regulator in the world of commerce. Neither would there ever be, under this Alturian system of exchange, a glut in the market at one place while there was a scarcity at another. You see here, said McNair, a business house which handles the trade of a continent containing over two hundred millions of people. All the products of the soil, the shop, the factory and the mine, are practically bought and sold in this establishment, and yet without any of the excitement and bustle, hard work and worry which characterize the comparatively diminutive business houses of New York and London. I see evidences, I remarked, of a most admirable business system on a stupendous scale. But the question that will be asked in the outer world will be, how are these goods paid for, and how are the prices fixed, and the accounts adjusted without money? This is what the people of the outer world will want to understand. I am asking more for them than for myself. Nothing difficult about it, said McNair. Product pays for product here, just as it actually does in the outer world. But under cooperation, the elements of interest, profit, and rent have been eliminated. The price of an article is fixed by the amount of labor expended in its production and distribution. This, of course, only applies to such commodities as are in demand. A great deal of labor might be expended in the production of something that no one wanted. Such labor would be wasted here as it would be anywhere else. I had thought of this contingency, I replied, but was not seeking a difficulty. I referred only to such articles of necessity, comfort, and luxury as the consumers wish to secure. How are the prices fixed? What is the standard? And how are balances settled? These questions, said McNair, are well put, to draw out a concise as well as a comprehensive statement of our business methods. We readily ascertain by statistics the average number of minutes, hours, and days of labor invested in the production of every commodity which enters into common use. This includes the labor invested in the necessary transportation, superintendence, and distribution. Hence, in our accounts, the value of products of all kinds are credited and debited as given amounts of labor. This is what, in the outer world, would be called the price. A given number of hours of labor in one branch of useful service to society is worth just the same number of hours of labor in some other branch, and the exchange is made on that basis. The one primary object of this system of exchange is to secure equal and exact justice to all. But how are all these numerous employees on your railroads, in your stores, and the various departments of industry paid? asked Captain Gano. Very easily, said McNair. The people produce all the supplies and render all the service, and the people enjoy all the benefits. This is about all there is of it. We produce what we consume, and consume what we produce, without paying tribute to anyone else for the privilege of exercising these natural rights, as the people in the outer world are forced to do. But, said the captain, would you have me infer that all these expert clerks and accountants and the commissioner who superintends all this business do not receive any more than the laborers on the farms and in the shops, factories and mines? Why would they get more than people who are engaged in laborious occupations? 
asked Iola. They get all they can consume. If they should use a little more or less, no one cares. They can have all they want without working any more hours than other people, and I cannot understand how they could use any more food or clothing without ruining their health or making themselves very uncomfortable. I cannot conceive of any person wanting to eat more food or wear more clothes because he or she is employed in some position of trust. Can you, Captain Gano? I admit, replied the captain, that your question is a poser, and this is not the first time that I have been puzzled by your remarks. I do not say that you are wrong, but I never heard questions handled in this way until I drifted into this inner world. I can only say that I am bewildered, and while I do not comprehend your philosophy, I do admire your civilization. And, responded Iola, I cannot comprehend how anyone can admire our civilization without accepting our philosophy. The civilization of a people is only reducing to practice the mental and moral concepts of the people. Our civilization is the logical outcome of our philosophy. People always think first and act afterward. Our philosophy is what we think, and our civilization is the result of what it induces us to do. Well, said the captain, it has certainly induced your people to do many things that would look very strange in the outer world, but which seem to work rightly here. Okwa, who had quietly dropped out of our party without being observed, now joined us, accompanied by a man of commanding appearance. He was about six feet, four inches in height, brown hair, full beard, blue eyes, fair complexion, and a high intellectual forehead. Okwa introduced him as Norena, chief of the Continental Department of Education. His address was most gentle, pleasing and kind, but firm and decided. Turning to me, he said, I had hoped to have an opportunity to make the acquaintance of Jack Adams, the scientist of the Ice King, but Okwa tells me that I must be content with Nequa, the teacher. She informs me that you are preparing a book to be published in your own country, and to that end you are making a close study of our civilization. That is true, I said, and she has spoken to me of you as one who could render me great assistance in gathering the lessons that would be of the most value in our transition from competition to cooperation. I shall gladly render you any assistance in my power, he said, but what you can see here of our completed system of cooperation in every department of human endeavor will be indispensable to a clear comprehension of the lessons to be drawn from the history of our own transition period. Thank you, I said, and I would be pleased to have you show me through the departments and call my attention to such features as will be of the greatest advantage for me to understand just at this time. This is the same request that was made by Okwa, as it would take a long time for you to find just what you want without the assistance of someone who is familiar with all the departments, and who also understands the nature of the work in which you are engaged. To begin, we will now visit the Department of Public Printing and News Distribution. We now dispensed with our electric chairs, as we felt the need of exercise. As we emerged from the exchange building, Norena took the lead and conducted us into another stupendous structure, devoted to the public printing and the distribution of news to all parts of the world. The upper story was an immense auditorium where public meetings of unusual proportions could meet and have ample room, and where the acoustic properties were so scientifically adjusted that all could hear the speaker in ordinary tones of voice. 
Norena conducted us first into the press room, where printed sheets were being turned out with a rapidity I had never before witnessed. These passed on an endless belt into the binding department, and from thence, in completed form, to the mailing rooms for distribution. Everything seemed to move with the same quiet celerity that we had noticed in the exchange department. From the press rooms we ascended in an elevator to the composing department, where we found a number of machines turning out stereotype plates, but no operators were anywhere in sight. Norena informed me that the machines were operated on the same principle as the telautograph, or writing telegraph, and with a multiplex system of transmission an expert could operate a number of these machines in different parts of the world at the same time. The matter for publication was thus delivered in the composing room in the shape of plates ready for the presses. But the most interesting and important feature of this great publishing house is the manner of collecting and distributing news. The news department is connected by telegraph with news offices throughout the world and is continually receiving items of general interest which are classified and distributed by the same means to the people in every home throughout the continent. The printed pages are of matter of a more permanent character, which is regarded as worthy of preservation. Copies of new books are sent to similar establishments in the other grant divisions, and by them reproduced and placed in their local libraries where all have access to them. This free distribution of intelligence to the whole people is under the direct control of the Department of Education. During the meetings of the Altrurian Council, this department has another important duty to perform. The Council, through this department, is practically, at all times, in communication with the majority of the people. When a matter of public interest has been carefully discussed, pro and con, it is formulated and transmitted to every community where the people are interested, a vote is then taken at once, and the result transmitted to the Council. By this means, a majority of the people can be heard from in regard to any matter of importance in a few hours. The people are at all times familiar with the matters which are being considered by the Council and are prepared to respond promptly. The communities ordinarily have decided any important questions in their minds before it is submitted to them and reply at once. I could readily see how, under an advanced state of civilization, direct government by the people is not only practicable but remarkable for its simplicity and promptness of execution. The Council acts upon all matters in which two or more districts are interested, and the matter is formulated and submitted at once to the people of such districts for their approval or disapproval. But in any matter of great importance, the people are not compelled to wait for the regular meeting of the Council, but may, by the action of the communities, place the matter before the Executive Committee, which meets every day, and it becomes their duty to submit the question to a vote of the people. In this way, under this system, the people can always secure prompt action, as it is the duty of their officials to serve, but not to govern, as they do in the outer world. If a public improvement is agreed upon, the districts and communities interested make an appropriation of necessary material and labor, and the work is pushed forward. In all things, this great council is advisory in its character, and the executive committee only takes such action as the people have agreed upon, and when any matter has been agreed upon, the executive power acts at once without question. The will of the people is the law which no one ever assumes to question. We passed rapidly through a large number of magnificent structures filled with exhibits of all kinds. 
In Machinery Hall were samples of every conceivable mechanical device. Another vast building was devoted to textile fabrics of all kinds. Every industry had its exhibit. All the great grand divisions had similar buildings. Everywhere, accommodating attendants were ready to show us anything and give us any information we wished. And one remarkable thing was that while everyone seemed anxious to display the goods on exhibition, no one ever tried to sell us anything, as would have been the case in the outer world. Here, as McNair said, was indeed a miniature picture of a world. I could write a volume on each one of these great buildings without exhausting the subject. But for the present I had seen enough, and requested Norena to conduct us next to the Library of Universal Knowledge, which was the most highly finished and imposing of all these palatial structures. It was built of the usual semi-transparent material which shut out the direct rays of the sun, while it admitted a mellow radiance, rendering artificial light as a rule unnecessary. We took an elevator to the top, where we began our survey of the contents. Elevators at frequent intervals connected every story. A description of one story would in a general way apply to all the others. Each floor is divided longitudinally into three halls or suites of rooms. The central division is ordinarily a single hall 50 feet in width by 600 in length, and in these central halls are stored all the books, papers and relics of the past. Also specimens of ores, metals, alloys and compounds of everything that goes to make a complete museum of natural history and scientific methods in chemistry and the mechanic arts. Different stories are given to archaeology, ethnology, geology, chemistry, electricity, etc., and constitute a most instructive feature of this library of universal knowledge. These divisions on either side are given up to reading rooms, lecture halls and schools for culture in technical branches that can be studied to better advantage here in this vast library than elsewhere. In the reading rooms, which are always open to the public, full catalogues are always kept for visitors and courteous attendants are ever ready to give any information and procure any book that may be needed. Books are all numbered and catalogued, so the visitor has but to press the number of an electric keyboard, and it is delivered at once by a pneumatic tube. The attendants return the books to their proper places in the same rapid and quiet manner. No noise, bluster or confusion anywhere. Everything is reduced to system and moves along like clockwork. Instruction is free in any of the technical schools, to all who apply and submit to the rules. These schools embrace every specific branch of study and are usually patronized by graduates from the public schools who desire to perfect their knowledge of some specific branch in order to be better qualified for a special calling. Here can be studied under the most favorable conditions the progressive development of a world, illustrated at every step by the relics indicative of its status, which are carefully preserved in the museums, thus tracing in the most instructive and satisfactory manner the progress of the people from their primitive condition of barbarians to their present high state of culture. I saw at a glance that this was the place where my contemplated work of investigation into the practical methods which had enabled the people of this country to develop such ideals could be prosecuted under the most favorable conditions. I determined to make good use of these facilities for gathering the ripened sheaves of human thought in every age and condition of life for the benefit of the people of my own native land. 
In the lower story, we passed into the department where new publications are received and catalogued. The first thing that attracted my attention was the translations from the Library of the Ice King, which seemed to have the right of way over everything else. Among these translations, I noticed the American Cyclopedia, Whitbath's History of the World, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Histories of the United States and the Leading Countries of the World, together with a selection of works on polar exploration and a number of scientific works. I was astonished at the progress that had been made, but Norena informed me that, under their system, a work could be translated almost as fast as it could be read, and that the work had been divided between the scholars of all the grand divisions. I asked Norena if there was much demand of these translations of outer world literature, and he replied, Yes, the orders from each grand division amount to millions, and they can be translated in all parts of the concave as rapidly as the presses can turn them out. This is especially true of everything pertaining to America, whose history up to date is so similar to the early stages of our own. But, I said, with a usual large attendance at the reading rooms, one volume will do for a number of persons, and I should think that would greatly decrease the demand. That is true, said Norena, but all have an equal right to be served, and this addition to our knowledge of the outer world is in such great demand that all want to be supplied at the same time. Of course that is impossible, I said, and so I suppose that with all your improved methods many will be compelled to wait. Not so very many, said Norena. All may not be able to get books, but all who desire to do so can hear them read. How, I asked, can that be, when millions are asking to hear them read all at once? Not so very difficult, he replied, when we use the multiplex phonograph. One reader can be heard all over the concave. A vast number would rather listen to a good reader than to read themselves, and as the voice of this reader can be connected with a large number of phonograph reading rooms at the same time, in each such room, as many can listen as can be seated. You astonish me, I said. Will you please explain how this is done? I will do more than that, he said. I will show you how it is done. Come with me. I followed him into a large room, where I found, I should think, from two to three hundred people composedly sitting in chairs or reclining on sofas and divans, with phonographic attachments in their ears. These, said Norena, are all listening to readers at Lake Biblis, who are assisting in the translation of these works. They are using these attachments in the ears because they are not all listening to the same matter. This is a fair sample of what is going on in every room of this character throughout the concave. A large number of professional readers are employed who are connected by telephone and phonograph with every home and reading room in all parts of the country. By such means you see that we can disseminate knowledge almost simultaneously to all who are most anxious for it. The demand for printed books is mainly from libraries and reading rooms, public and private. The masses of the people at this time are spending much of their ample leisure in listening to the reading of this new addition to our literature. It will not be long before the most industrious intellectually have absorbed, to a considerable extent, this most valuable addition to our knowledge, and then a very large number will apply themselves to the study of the English language, so that they may be able to judge for themselves as to the accuracy of the translations.
I see from your admirable system of distributing knowledge that there must be an extraordinary demand to be supplied. Nothing extraordinary for us, said Norena. The demand is steady with a tendency to increase. Our people are all workers who have enough physical exercise to keep their bodies in good condition, and this stimulates the mind to demand food, which it is our duty to provide. Do you not often find this difficult? I asked. Not at all, he replied. In this, as in the supply of food for the body, the quantity is always ample, where the operations of natural law are not antagonized in the administration of public business. We have ample facilities for gathering news, and everyone who has a thought to express finds an opportunity to do so. There is a steady supply which we distribute alike to all. This demand for mental food is even more pressing than the demand for physical nourishment. The real man and the real woman are not their physical bodies, but the living souls which occupy these bodies, and it is the duty of this department of the public service to provide these souls with the stuff of life, which is knowledge. Before leaving the library, Norena requested us to record our names on the visitor's book. We complied, and then continued our rambles until I, for one, was utterly exhausted and asked to be excused from further exercise. Then, said Norena, we will retire to the Department of Public Comfort, where I have my private rooms, and while you are resting, we can talk of our plans for the future, or other matters that may demand attention. I am much interested in this move to improve the airships with a view to opening up a line of communication with the outer world. And, I remarked, I am, if possible, more interested in the completion of my book in time for it to go to the United States by the first airship for publication and I want it to contain every lesson of importance to our people that can be gleaned from the present condition and the past history of the people of this country. As we were speaking, Norena held the passing electric carriage, and in a few minutes we were landed at the grandest hotel I had ever entered in my life. I could see at a glance why it was called the Department of Public Comfort. Every facility for the comfort and enjoyment of guests was provided but the dimensions assigned to this volume will not permit a description. I need only say that all its appointments were complete for the accommodation of thousands of guests. While each of the department buildings had its own arrangements for accommodating its own force of employees and its own guests, this Department of Public Comfort was designed more especially for guests from other grand divisions. Here the heads of departments of all the grand divisions held their conferences, and here the continental heads of departments, very appropriately, had their headquarters. After supper, Norena informed me that on the morrow he would devote an hour to oral lessons at the Institute of District School Superintendents, and that his subject would be the history of the transition period. This, he explained, covers that period in the history of Altruria which marks the decline and fall of the old system of competition and the introduction of cooperative methods. It may be just what you want in the way of lessons from history. If you think that you cannot yet understand our language well enough to fully comprehend all the points, I will provide you with a translation into English. I thanked him for his interest in my work and assured him that while I wanted to hear him in his own tongue, if he could provide me with the same matter in English, it would help me to a better understanding of the language of the country, and that certainly I did not want to miss any point of real value in the subject matter.
End of chapter 11